Hi, I'm Zach Rohn. When I hear, hello, it's me, I don't necessarily think of the popular song. I think of Jacob at his first birthday party. It's the first one he's ever had. After eating his cupcake with a picture of his face on it, he runs to the nearby payphone. He picks up the receiver and he says, Hi, Mom, it's me. You should see the presents and the cupcake and the people at my party. And, well, Jacob picked up that receiver every day at Royal Family Kids Camp to tell a story to parents who were not even at the other end of the phone in more than one way. Last week in Adult Sunday School, we heard about how we can do local ministry with foster children. RFKC is one of those ministries. We've offered role of family to abuse and neglected kids like Jacob for the past 21 years, but we're at a time when many volunteers are moving on into other phases of their lives. Last year, we replaced a director and curriculum leaders, and we found new grandparents for this upcoming camp week. This year, we have need of male and female counselors, a music coordinator and leader, drama performers, and even someone to organize carnival games. Next year, we'll need a new videographer, and we'd love to train that person this year. Our 22nd camp week runs from July 10th through the 15th, and in the same way that we need volunteers, we'd also welcome financial support as many donors like our volunteers have moved on to other phases of their lives. You can speak to Nancy Murphy or me, or you can email us at houghton.rfkc at gmail.com. I'll repeat that. At Houghton dot rfkc at gmail.com volunteer applications are needed by february 15th thank you for helping us to lead the little children to jesus we hope that you might prayerfully consider being involved in this incredible and important ministry please stand and join us as we continue in worship by singing our praises to god together
hope for you, for you are our strength and our shield. We wait in expectation for you. Make us ready, Lord. Open our hearts, free our minds, speak deeply to us of your love, so that we are ready to do all that you have called us to do. It is in your most holy name that we pray. Amen. Let's remain standing as we await the word of the Lord from the Gospel of Luke. Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is found in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and the news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. 
He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up and read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, that no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. At this time, we'll ask our ushers to come forward to receive your tithes and offerings, and you may be seated.
Father, we can't help but feel grateful for all the ways in which you worked in this world in our lives, and we thank you that the Lamb has overcome. As we continue in worship, fill our hearts with such joy because of who you are and what you've done for us, and we pray this through Christ. Amen. Before you're seated, share a word of greeting with others here in worship today. In one way or another, one of the questions that that we're asking ourselves and each other, it is really at the heart of most of the theological discussions that Christians have, and quite frankly, other people who aren't Christians have, is what does the kingdom of God look like? What is the kingdom of God like? Another way of saying that for us is what is the church like? What are the characteristics? What are the, what are the priorities? What's the vision, the mission? What, what is the church about? What's the kingdom of God about? What makes that question so important is because the kingdom reflects the king. And what we find in the scriptures is that the kingdom of God, as the scriptures describe it, are really describing the nature and the character of God himself. Which means that when we talk about the kingdom and we begin describing the kingdom, what we're really doing is describing the nature of God, which makes that question monumentally important. How does God relate to the world? What does God expect of people? What does it mean to be in the kingdom? What does it mean to be outside of the kingdom? The season of Epiphany is, uh, the word Epiphany, of course, means manifestation, revelation. And it is a, it is a short season that, that really focuses on the early days of Jesus' ministry, about how he reveals the kingdom, how he reveals who God is. He reveals what he has come to do. Because everything Jesus does in these first few instances of his ministry are simply setting the stage for everything else that he's going to do, and ultimately the cross and the tomb. And so it's imperative to understand, to think about, what is, the, what is Jesus doing now? What's he revealing? What's he telling us about the kingdom and about God, who is the king of the kingdom? 
And this passage in Luke chapter 4 is one of the passages that the church through the centuries has turned to at this time of year as it is one of the early uh, incidents in the life of Jesus. It tells us that as Jesus begins his ministry, he's going around the region of Galilee in the northern part of Israel, and he is preaching, he is teaching in the synagogues, he's doing miracles, and the people are really loving it. I mean, they are behind him, they're with him, they're impressed with him, they're amazed at his teaching. He go, everywhere he goes, he goes into the synagogue, he begins to teach to them, and, and, and they are spellbound by his teaching. It is so good. And then Jesus makes his way to Nazareth, his hometown. It's always hard to come home. Have you ever had that experience? You know, if you, you live somewhere for a while, you move away, and you think, oh, I can't wait to get back. And when you go back, it's just never quite the same as it was. When I read this passage, I always think about 25 or so years ago when I got a phone call from someone uh, in the church in Evansville, Indiana, where I was raised, and my dad was the pastor, and asking me if I might be interested in talking with them about becoming the pastor of their church. Now, as I'm thinking through this on the phone, I, the thoughts, you know, were racing through my mind, because it came out of the blue. And one of the thoughts was, well, that would be kind of fun. That'd be cool. Uh, that church, very instrumental in my spiritual life, very important place for me. I love the, the city of Evansville. I have lots of friends there. I'd love to go back, reconnect with them. Uh, this could really be great. And I, I said, well, let me think about it. I hung up the phone, and I, the more we talked about it and the more I thought about it, I realized maybe it wouldn't be so great. Because I left there at the age of 18, and I have really never been back. And I have a feeling that it would be difficult for most of those people to see me as anything more than an 18-year-old. I get, I get locked into that time. You know how that happens with people. And so as, as their pastor, trying to tell them hard things and trying to say confrontational things, I can just see them back there going, yeah, but I remember when you did. And they would be right about that. And I decided maybe it wasn't the best choice for me. And I think about that with Jesus as he comes back to Nazareth. And, and there are people in the crowd who... They've been hearing about what he's been doing, and they like what they're hearing. And in one way, I think they're excited because the hometown boy makes good, right? I mean, this is like, this, this is our Jesus. Look at what he's doing. Look how people love him. This is awesome. But at the same time, they're sitting there saying, isn't that Joseph's son? Didn't he make that cabinet for us? I remember when he used to play with our children. It's hard coming home. And Jesus comes into Nazareth and he gets, comes to the synagogue and he does what he always does. He sits down to teach. He pulls out the scroll and hand him Isaiah. And he reads this passage from Isaiah. It's actually Isaiah 61. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see that the oppressed will be set free, that the time of the Lord's favor has come. This is really a, a prophetic word that connects to the Old Testament practice of the year of Jubilee. This is one of the old things that God set up as Israel was moving from Egyptian slavery and to permanent residency in the land of Canaan. And, and the, the year of Jubilee, there are three things really that are instrumental into the year of Jubilee. One of them is that they give the, the soil, they give the land rest. Now, they also gave the land rest every seven years. So now, the 49th year they give the land rest, and the 50th year they give the land rest. And it's a chance for the land to recover. It's also a chance for Israel to really learn to trust God. Because they're not going to plant anything for two years. And God says, I will take care of you. I'll supply what you need. The second thing about the, about the year of Jubilee is that it is the restoration of land back to its original ownership. 
As the years would go by, people would get into debt. People couldn't handle the land and taking care of it. Uh, They would lose their land for a variety of reasons, and someone else would own it. But when it came to the 50th year, it came to the year of Jubilee, all the land, it doesn't matter if someone bought the land from you or not, all the land reverts back to its original owner. And it is a way of God simply saying, look, you can't control people. And you can't control land. I mean, land was such a precious resource for them. And God is saying to Israel, look, your livelihood is more important than the land. So it's going to go back. You're going to revert back. Everybody goes, goes back to its original owners. And so as they sold land, they had that in mind. The land cost a lot less if you were in the 40th year than if you were in the 20th year. Because if you buy that land, you know you're only going to hang on to it for 10 years. If it's the 40th year, you're going to hang on to it for 30 years if it's the 20th year. So that was the second thing. And the third thing is that all the people who had sold themselves into slavery were set free. People incurred debts. They borrowed. They couldn't pay the debt back. And often the only way to make up your debt was to enslave yourself to someone. And so you'd sell yourself, your family into slavery, and you would spend years working it off. And God says to Israel, that's not my favorite thing to have you do, but I'm going to let that happen, but only for a little bit. Eventually, slaves are set free. Because you cannot, just as you don't want to, I don't want you manipulating the land and thinking that the land is something that is yours because the land is really mine that you are stewarding for me. In the same way, you can't control people like that either. And so in a sense, people really weren't as much slaves as they were hired hands. People that worked off their debt and then on that 50th year were released. They were set free. And the Israelites came to see the year of Jubilee as not just every 50-year event, but it became something that really described the coming of the Messiah. It really became something eschatological for them in the future, that when the Messiah comes, there will be the year of Jubilee. And this prophecy will come true. When the Messiah comes, when God sends his messenger, he will set the captives free, and he he will heal And he will make things right. And all of the stuff about society that's a mess, he's going to redeem and restore. And Jesus says to them, that's me. Jesus says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I'm the one. I expected them to respond to that with anger. Because a lot of times they do. When Jesus makes an inclination that he is the promised one, they get upset. Who are you to say that? You can't be saying that kind of thing. In fact, one of the things that, they, one of the things that gets him to the cross is to say he claimed to be the Messiah. But at this point in Nazareth, they're okay with it. And maybe it's, hey, look, our hometown boys made good. This is awesome. Messiah from Nazareth. But Jesus can't leave it alone. If he had just stopped there, everything would have been fine. He could have walked out of the synagogue and people would have, with, with a, people would have put him up on their shoulders. He got done with that sermon and he'd get the Gatorade bath. You know what I mean? This was a great thing. People love it. But he says, let me just, he says to them, let, let me tell you one more thing. You're going to say to me, physician, heal yourself. In other words, You're going to want me to do things for you, but I'm not going to be able to do them here. And I'll tell you why. Because you people don't have faith. And then he tells them a couple of stories from the Old Testament. And they get really upset. I mean, they get so upset, they drag him out of the synagogue, and they're trying to throw him off the cliff of the city. I think that's pretty upset. They're pretty irritated. Murderously irritated. 
And I'm thinking, I'm reading this story and I'm thinking, what is it about these two Old Testament stories that ignite this, this riot against him? What happens? I mean, it's not like he's making up parables that he's just creating stories. These are stories that are in their scriptures. And there are two stories from the days of Elisha and the days of Elijah. He talked about Elijah and the, and the land filled with famine. No one, everyone was in terrible turmoil because of the sin, and God has sent a famine to the land of Israel. And he said, and he says to Elijah, "I want you to go to a widow in Zarephath in Sidon, and she'll take care of you." And he goes. What's fascinating is that Elijah is kind of is on the run at that point as the. Famine is taking place. He's on the run from from King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, and mainly Queen Jezebel. What's interesting is that Jezebel's hometown is Sidon. That's her home country, is Sidon. And God says, I'm going to send you to her home country, and there's a widow there who's going to take care of you. And Jesus says to the people of Nazareth, there were all kinds of widows in Israel, but where did God send Elijah? Not to any of the Israelite widows, but to the widow in Sidon. And that starts to get them upset. And then he says, and there were all kinds of people with leprosy later on in the time of Elisha. But God didn't heal them. He healed Naaman, who was a a captain of the army of Syria. And Syria, one of Israel's greatest enemies. They hated each other and they were continually raiding each other. And Syria would come into Israel and they would carry off slaves. They were always fighting with each other. And the Israelites hated the Syrians. And Jesus says, all the lepers in Israel, God doesn't send Elisha to them. He sends them to Syria. And that's all they can take. But what is it about those stories that incites this riot? It's because Jesus is saying to them, in essence, being an Israelite and following the rules doesn't get you in the kingdom. Having faith is what gets you in the kingdom. And in fact, Gentiles, people you hate, with faith are in the kingdom. And Israelites who don't have faith are not in the kingdom. And all this teaching about the year of Jubilee, they're going to experience that and not you. You stop for a second and think about the people groups that you have a hard time really picturing being in the kingdom. People you struggle to think they really, they really deserve to be in the kingdom. Maybe it's people who have a different, different political position than you have. Maybe it's people that have a different theological position than you have. Maybe it's people who have, who have done heinous things and then they have repented and turned around and the whole time you're thinking, eh, I don't know. Maybe it's people that, quite frankly, you're jealous of spiritually. See, the problem with this is that Israel is looking at these other people groups through their judgmental filter. And it's not just that they are enemies of Israel. They're enemies of God. I mean, Jezebel murders hundreds, if not thousands, of Israelite prophets. And what happens is we, we put people in people groups. We, we paint them all with this wide brush. And we say, if they are a part of this people group, then they're out. Instead of looking at them as individuals like God does and say, look, they may be a part of that people group. And maybe a whole lot of that people group doesn't care about God, but they do. They have faith. And instead of being hard-hearted toward them, we rejoice in that. When we think of people as just people groups, it's a lot easier to judge them 
quite frankly, it's a lot easier to hate them. But when we get to know people who are a part of those people groups, it begins to break down the walls. When we begin to see people in those groups opening their hearts to Jesus, it ought to change us. And see, the problem is when we, are, when we have a judgmental spirit and, and when, we, when we, quite frankly, hate other groups or at least really don't want them in the kingdom, that doesn't just affect them and us. It affects us and God. It's one of the signs that our hearts are hardened. It's one of the signs that we aren't thinking the way God is. Because Jesus clearly says these two people who are part of groups of people that should not be allowed in the kingdom are in the kingdom. Do they understand everything? Of course not. Have they figured it all out? Not by any means. But they have faith. And God can work with faith. But God has a hard time working with hardened hearts. If we look at this story, I suspect most of us would probably identify more with the people of Nazareth in the synagogue than with Naaman or the widow. We spend a lot of our time in the church. We spend a lot of our time learning the rules. And really, one of the problems that the Jews have with these other people groups is that they don't follow the rules. God gave them the law. This is what you do. This is how you live. This is how you practice. And you have to follow the rules. And if you don't follow the rules, you can't be in. Faith or no faith. And Jesus is saying, having faith and not following the rules is better than following the rules and not having faith. Now, faith isn't the end. It's the entry point. It's where we start and we grow and we learn and we help people develop. But so often we get caught up in, but they don't do it the way we do it. They don't think about things the way we think about them. They don't play by the rules. And so therefore they can't get in. And as important as some of those rules are, God is much more interested that we have hearts that are open to him. Hearts that want to trust him. Hearts of faith. And he is that we know and follow all the rules. I don't know that we would be so angry with Jesus that we would throw, want to throw him off a cliff. But I do think sometimes we get frustrated with God. When people that we don't think deserve it are blessed. When people who, who don't understand things the way we do seem to be making a lot of spiritual progress. It's in those moments when we are challenged, every one of us are challenged. Are we going to be open to the way God sees the world? Or are we going to reject him? Reject Jesus. Yesterday we hosted this seminar by the Lilius Trotter Center uh, about uh, Christians and Muslims and it dealt with immigration a bit and refugees and just how we respond to that. It was a powerful time and uh, I know a number of you were there and uh, if you didn't have a chance to, we may see if we can figure out another time down the road to have them make a presentation, but... One of the things that kept being repeated over and over again in the seminar was this. We're never going to be, we're never going to have an influence on, on the Muslim world and on Muslim people until we see them as God does. As people he created in his image. And we will never We'll never have the kind of mindset about the kingdom and about people until we begin to see every single one of them as created in the image of God. As people that God loves, people that Jesus died for. 
people that are every bit as important to God as you and I are. And my biggest concern for us is that in our walk with Christ, that we would get so wrapped up in in our way of seeing things that it becomes more important than Jesus. And that we become cold and hard-hearted rather than open and sensitive and caring and compassionate. I mean, how many times the scriptures talk about the gospel as good news? And I fear sometimes that the impression we give to people is that the gospel is anything but good news. Because we keep putting up barriers for people. We keep putting up walls. We keep rejecting people. We keep demanding people. Instead of helping people understand that faith in Christ is what the kingdom is about. And in that faith, God will transform and restore and heal and bring life. As we come to this table this morning, I think it's important for us to remember that this is a table of grace. If we only came to this table because we had earned the right, we'd all stay in our seats. All of us. But this is a table of grace. And we're invited to come to this table, not because we have followed the rules, but because we have faith. Because however little or much, we want to trust Jesus. We come in gratitude as much as we know for what Jesus has done for us. And we want our lives to be about Jesus. And so as we come today, let's come with hearts open to him. Asking him to set us free from, from the ways in which we judge people and the ways in which we build walls around the kingdom. And the ways in which we allow our hearts to become hardened. And ask God to give us a spirit of faith and openness and love and compassion and to be able to show the kind of grace to other people that God has shown to us. In Isaiah 66, it talks about the, the fulfillment of the kingdom. And what's fascinating in that image is that when God, God restores his world to what it was supposed to be, and the judgment day comes... God is glorified not to sit back and to, and to bring wrath on people. I think that breaks God's heart. God celebrates because there are so many from so many nations of the world who have trusted him. Unexpected people. People we wouldn't have dreamed have come to faith. My prayer is that that will be the desire of our hearts. We can see the kingdom the way Jesus reveals it. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your grace to us and your mercy upon us. And we pray that you will, you will give us new hearts of gratitude and thanksgiving for all the ways in which you've blessed us for your grace poured out to us. Father, we pray that you will hear our prayers, not only for uh, our own hearts, but for those around us and the needs that we represent. We think, Father, of all who are grieving and ask for your comfort upon them. We think of all who are struggling with illness and pain and 
We have a, a list of people in the bulletin that we pray for. We want to add to that list Elijah Beardsley, who's in the hospital undergoing tests. And we ask, Father, for your grace upon each one of these who are in need, those mentioned here and the others that are on our hearts and minds today. Father, we pray for the ministries of this church, and we thank you especially for the small group ministry. We pray that these groups will continue to be a means of spiritual growth for us, relationship building. And Father, we pray for the ministries of other churches around us. We think especially the Rushford United Methodist Church. Pastor Russell, pour out your blessing and your grace upon them in powerful ways as they minister to their community and beyond. Father, we think of the world. Pray for the, the world around us here. And we think of Royal Family Kids Camp that we've heard about this morning and the needs that they have for people to come and to work and the financial needs. And we pray that you might touch our hearts about ways that we might be involved to help these children know your love. We pray for the nation of Haiti. We've had a team that's just returned. Great things have happened, and we pray that this seed they planted will grow to bear amazing fruit. We pray, Father, for our brothers and sisters who serve in countries of the world and live in countries of the world where there is opposition, and violence, and terrorism against them. We think especially of Ken and Jocelyn Elliott, when the attack in Benin and Burkina Faso were taken hostage, many others were murdered. Pray for their families and their friends and those who are grieving. And we pray for the Elias that you would give them strength in the midst of this difficult circumstance and that their captors might see you in them in such a way that they would open their hearts to you, be transformed. Lord, thank you for your grace in our lives. We thank you for the bread and the cup which we're about to partake this morning. And we ask for your blessing upon these elements. As we eat and drink, may we, may we sense your grace in us, breaking down barriers and walls and, and, and softening our hard hearts toward others and toward you. May this be a place of grace for each of us. We pray this, Father, through the mercy of of Jesus Christ. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks to the Father in heaven and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. But this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And on the same night he took a cup. Again, he gave thanks to the Father in heaven and gave it to his disciples saying, drink from this all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. As you're released by rose this morning, come to the front, tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup, eat it. And then you can return to your seat by the outside aisle. Altar rails always open if you'd like to stay and pray. If coming to the front is difficult for you, we do have trays, bread and cups. We're happy to serve you in your seat. I also have gluten-free wafers here and cups. Just let me know if you'd like those as you come to the front. I always like to mention that we practice open communion at the Western Church. It might be the first time that you've ever worshipped here. But if you come today with your heart open to Christ and with a desire to live your life for Christ, then come, receive these gifts from our gracious, loving, Heavenly Father. Star saints find their way at the sound of your great name. All condemned feel no shame at the sound of your great Oh no. 
Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.